Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller. I'm excited about today's episode because we're talking with two very young mm-hmm. biotech entrepreneurs from two very different backgrounds who came together to found and build a company that achieved commercial success in very rapid fashion. The company is called Biostem Technologies. It manufactures regenerative therapeutic products for surgical and wound care applications from perinatal tissue. And its founders are Jason Matashevsky and Andrew Van Verst. I'm not going to prattle on for too long about their pre-Biostem experience because frankly, there's not really much to talk about. These guys pretty much got done with their post-secondary education experiences, got right to work, and they're now marketing at least three approved allograft products manufactured in their own AATB accredited, FDA registered, CGMP compliant lab. And now we're about to hear their story. Jason, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, So I want to get right into the story uh, about how you guys kind of came together. Um, but, But first, a little bit about each of your backgrounds. Jason, I want to start with you. Uh, you came out of the Milwaukee School of Engineering with a mechanical engineering degree in 2013. And by 2014, you had co-founded this company that uses perinatal tissue to develop, manufacture, and commercialize allografts regenerative therapies. So, you know, that's uh, pretty pretty unusual. The two obvious questions that jump right out at me are, one, what predicated your shift from mechanical engineering to uh, engineering human tissue? And how do you find yourself in a position so quickly out of school to uh, co-found uh, a biotech? Yeah. Uh, th- thanks again, Matt, for having us uh, today. Uh, I guess I'll take you back to in the beginning. Uh, you know, I actually started school in 2005. So I took a long journey to get through school. 2005 to 2013. Uh, and that took me back to an area in which I originally was going to school at the same time doing a lot of data analysis for vehicle dynamics uh, and, and looking at data. And my undergrad actually was focused not only on mechanical engineering, but mechanical engineering technology, using computer science to solve complex engineering problems. And I had an opportunity to continue education in, in engineering, but also mathematics. And, and I really enjoyed both subjects which then kind of drove me into, as you're using computer models and engineering and and working with vehicle dynamics, it it also lends itself to looking at different materials and how materials, um, you know, with the changes in materials or shapes with specific items, how that materials uh, function changes the output of the product, whether it's breaking, whether it's stretching, different heat applications, things of that nature. And that kind of lended itself to, uh, you know, biologics, uh, looking at it from just a very material science perspective. Uh, I did a short stint at AETI Metals, which is a uh, firm that makes a lot of products for the DOD, Uh, helicopter parts, aerospace parts, things of that nature, Uh, found a love for material science. Uh, And then that kind of lended uh, itself to a lot of the engineering, materials engineering that we're doing and developing uh, our products, as well as working with the PhD team here uh, around the bioretain process and looking at not only uh, finding a way to uh, make a better product from a bio, uh, I'll call it, you know, unique elements perspective, whether it's re, uh, proteins, growth factors, things of that nature from a biologics perspective, but also from a, a more integrity perspective, creating a better covering and looking at the process of creating that product. So, yeah, let uh, me ask you, let me interrupt you real quick there and ask you this question. When you were, uh, you know, you said you took a sort of a meandering path from 05 to 13 on, on the education, which I have a, I have an 18 year old son who's uh, applying for colleges right now. And and that kind of gives me heart palpitations, you know, the the, the, con- yeah. the prospect of <laughs> a, a career, a career student. But interestingly, he's uh, he's he's uh, super interested in engineering. He's a very linear thinker, very mathematically inclined. Uh, and, and, he, and he's looking at engineering, but, but at 18 years old, he's going on 18 years old. He's a senior in high school and um, his perception of where, like w- what pursuing an engineering degree looks like is very, I've learned, I've come to realize is very narrow. Um, and perhaps that's a product of, of, of just the education system, the school that he's in. 
Um, but he knows that he wants to apply, that he's got the chops to apply what he knows and, and what he's good at to an engineering, in an engineering capacity. But the, the concept of taking engineering, um, an en- engineering education into something like biology would, would be completely foreign to him. You know, to, yeah. to, to, and I think this is true of a lot of a lot of kids, a lot of students who are considering STEM. They feel like, well, I've got to zero in on a specific discipline. Um, you know, maybe it's aeronautical engineering. Like you just talked about, you know, helping the DOD build helicopter parts. Like, yeah, well, yeah I was doing that yesterday, and today I'm building, you know, allographs. Um, what, what I, I guess, what, what was your experience with that in terms of your uh, exposure to? The, the many avenues you, you could have taken with an engineering degree. Like when, when did you kind of open your mind to the reality that, Hey, you know, I, I don't necessarily have to stick with automotive, mechanical, architectural, whatever it might be like the, the, these, these concepts, these foundational concepts can take me pretty much anywhere. Yeah. I mean, honestly, ironically, um, the, the program that I was able to, work through or go through at university was a program where you're able to take classes at night or in the afternoon. And I chose the opportunity to work as I was going through the engineering, uh, you know, program, uh, to, and it allowed me to not only see the problem from a textbook and call it to your point, very narrow mindset, but also see it in the real world, you know, seeing real world problems on a day-to-day basis in, in, in actual, and, engineering uh, principles in application uh so that it was it was a in my mind it actually made a lot of the classwork easier because now i'm taking a different perspective i'm looking at the problem from not just you know call it an equation-based formula or uh, i'll call it a very static uh, uh approach but like okay how does this actually apply and then you start thinking about uh, other ways to uh, apply either a, a formula or other ways to solve the equation, I guess is probably the better way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, it, and it, for me, it actually made it easier to understand the, call it um, X's and O's of engineering uh, and, and the engineering you know curriculum. Because uh, I was able to actually say, okay, how does it actually apply to me in real life? And then, you know, ironically, you know, engineering, you know, classes that are, are to your point, very linear, uh, X, XO, uh, you know, input in X, X, you know, output Y. Um, but when you start being able to actually, uh, apply it in a true fashion or look at it from a true fashion, it actually makes some, a lot of the problems actually a lot easier, ironically. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, the, the second part of my original question to you was, uh, you know, one, the fir- first part was about the transition from engineering into bio. The second part was like, how, how do you find yourself coming out in 20, you know, 2013, I guess, and, and being, becoming CEO of a, of a biotech in, in 2015? Yeah. Um, it, the founding of the group actually was, uh, Andrew, his father and myself, um, and, and Andrew has actually a really great story that he could share with the pod as far as, you know, kind of how, how we got here, right? Um, uh, the vehicle dynamics part and engineering methodology is my tie to Andrew's father uh, by working with multiple com- race teams and stuff like that. So All right. it's, um, it's coming together for me now. Yeah, I yeah. have the connection between your, your, your vehicular, I guess, um, engineering experience uh, and, and what Andrew's dad is. I guess, in addition to being a biotech uh, entrepreneur, uh, perhaps yeah. more famous for, if you Google him anyway, he's, uh, he's, it's all race cars and not. not yep. uh, <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. that was kind of the initial introduction uh, or how, how the connection became about. And then uh, Andrew's father's passion in, in his, um, I'll call it output of, of receiving regenerative medicine. Uh, and kind yeah. of was here. Well, good. You set the segue up perfectly for Andrew. You know, so Andrew, you're, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you get into that kind of, uh, I guess, Genesis story and and your dad's role there as well. Um, but one of the things that intrigued me about you right off the get go when I met you a few weeks ago was that you uh, spent your post secondary time primarily in the Marine Corps um, until 2013. So. Uh, First of all, thank you for your service. Uh, that's super admirable work, and you know, I, I speak on behalf of of all our listeners when I when I tell you that we appreciate the service you put in there. Um, 
I don't often, I, I have talked to a few, you know, ex-military guys who are now founders of, of Biopharma. It's not very common though. So uh, I guess dovetail that with uh, with your dad's story and how you kind of came into, you're, you're COO, by the way. I don't think I mentioned that. Jason Matuszewski is the CEO of the company and, and Andrew Van Verst is the, is the chief operating officer. As the conversation unfolds, uh, if it unfolds anything like my first conversation with these guys, it'll, it'll become clear that the personalities definitely fit well with the roles they chose. Yeah. Yeah, I'll see if I can uh, dovetail all those things together. So as Jason mentioned, his, his backgrounds in mechanical engineering, my father and my family is, has been in the, in the racing world for a long time. Um, my father used to race cars uh, with Mazda and on behalf of Mazda and doing uh, you know races all over the country. Uh, eventually, he kind of landed in the Midwest for one of his races where Jason was working for the factory Mazda team at the time doing uh, car analysis, different different kinds of analysis on the car from an engineering perspective to see what he can do to improve uh, improve the drivers or the, the car for the drivers. Um, so that's where Jason and, and my father uh, Chip kind of you know met in and uh, you know the rest is history, I guess, and we're making history right now. It's yeah. uh, it's pretty cool, you know. They Jason's Jason's got. Uh, I'm from South Florida, born and raised. My father's from Michigan, Midwest, but. We, we have the, you know, South Florida mentality is a little bit different than the Midwest mentality. So I think uh, Chip appreciated that and Jason appreciated the honesty and, and kind of work ethic that he saw. And I think when they originally met, Jason was in his like mid teenage years. So he was pretty young uh, in general, let alone pretty young to be an engineer on the, uh, the factory Mazda team. So, you know, that kind of spoke for itself as well. So throughout the years, they always kind of worked together. Uh, Jason had some ventures he was starting on and, and, you know, eventually got his mechanical engineering degree and went into that field and worked for a few companies he mentioned before. And then um, my father went through, uh, you know, he, he's had a battle with cancer multiple times in his life. I think this is his, his fourth bout or recurrence of cancer at this point. Mm. And he's, he's always been the person, you know, if, if a doctor is going to come tell you, hey, you have X amount of time to live or your treatment options are limited in the U.S., um, and, and in order to get into trials or anything like that, they have available in the U.S. You have to have gone through X, Y, Z procedures for X amount of time. There's all these requirements that are predicates you had to have. So throughout his life, he's always kind of had to with with the type of cancer he has is very rare. Um, it's a it's a, a tumor type cancer. So he right now he's dealing with one in the brain where he uh, most recent or as recently as two years ago. Um, went over to South Korea and received CAR-T treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but back to kind of how we all got involved is my father had some treatments that he's received in Karolinska Institute in 2011, where I took special leave from the military to go over with him. Um, after that initial treatment, he went back and forth, received uh, numerous applications of the same gray matter radiation they do over there. Um, some of the complications or side effects from his, his procedures over there were stroke kind of like symptoms where left side of his body had slight paralysis, impaired speech. Uh, you could just kind of tell he was overall, you know, after a little bit of effort throughout the day, very tired and, and kind of, you know, ready to hang it up for the day yeah. after a few hours of work. So that kind of led us into, again, looking for alternative methods of treatment or alternative, you know, therapies that he could leverage to get him back to health and full function. Um, that led us into the previous company or you know the entity we're in today but the prior owners or prior leadership that did medical tourism so when uh my father had experienced these symptoms he was you know researching in south florida companies that did medical tourism type treatments this is when stem cells were kind of becoming popular say eight ten years ago um and then that led us to the dominican republic and a facility in guadalajara mexico um, so they were doing cellular treatments from umbilical cord derived, but still perinatal tissue or birth tissue, but umbilical cord derived cells. He received that. And after a few applications of that treatment had great results. Yeah. Um, so we had a, you know, personal family experience of seeing regenerative medicine applied and working. So from there we have a, uh, we, we had a personal attachment to it and, we worked with the, the previous management and owners of this company. 
and eventually uh, got in contact with Jason, kind of put the feelers out to see where he was in his career. We know we all you know, liked working together, had worked together, had a great relationship in the past and wanted to know if he was interested in, in a new venture. And the three of us uh, secured the capital by the controlling interest of the company. And then from there, restructured it uh, for the first, you know, six months to a year and then started, you know, folding in businesses, things like that, until we finally got our footing within the uh, regenerative tissue space and birth tissue. Well, uh, what, what year was that that you got back in touch with Jason and, and formed up uh, what would become um, the company you are today? The company was actually, you know, it was a previous company, but as far as us getting together and, and purchasing that, it was uh, around August of 2014 when the deal was actually closed. Yeah. So earlier in 2014, when the, when we got back in touch or continued conversations in a different direction, we were already always uh, always in communication throughout the years. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you're talking about race cars or, or regenerative medicine. Exactly. Um, you know, it's it's interesting the the story about your dad. You know, you you talk about the the concept of medical tourism, the places that your dad had to travel to uh, to to be exposed to some of these cell therapies. Um, you know, for myriad reasons, uh, political reason. I mean, you know, it's, it's back then, I'm sure, it, at least when your dad first started going down this path, I'm sure there was still. Uh, quite a bit of, and, and there remains some ethical uh, confusion even around where do stem cells come from? What what should be you know allowed? What 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 should be available? Uh, what shouldn't? Um, how, how far? I just, just frame up for me a little bit because uh, this will kind of dovetail into the the business itself. How far would you say from from your dad's initial experience and in his travels to places like I think you said El Salvador or, or Mexico? Um, since between then and now, how far have have we come here in the states in terms of our embrace and moving closer to the availability of of these sorts of treatments? Um, and and what's changed from when your dad, you know, found himself having to travel the world to to attempt some of these treatments? Yeah, I think um, you know we we kind of saw it um, in a weird way to correlate recent events to your question. We kind of saw it with COVID. Um, so when COVID was obviously very prevalent and, um, and first starting off, you had these companies and drug, drug manufacturers that were developing, um, developing, you know, the, the products, you know, if you, if you got, a if you ended up getting the vaccine, right. Mm-hmm. So those were all under an emergency use authorization. So the, the meth or the, the pathway in those other countries that we went to, there was emergency use type authorization. So as long as you, they, they had a little bit lower barrier than you had to have in the U S I think the, the U S is, you know, very good with the FDA. They, they want to make sure products are safe and efficacious for the, for the patients. And they wanted to see companies go through the certain pathways. And you've seen over the past few years, um, especially in the past few, couple of years about CAR T therapies. So there's now approved CAR T therapies in the U S um, some of them are required again, like I mentioned earlier that you have gone through prolo or chemo or certain types of th- cancer therapies prior to receiving it. But uh, there's actually approved products that are CAR T therapies now in the U S. So I think, you know, the U S is, is always an innovator and developer just, you know, they have a little bit more stringent standards with the FDA um, to be able to offer those products to certain patients, whereas yeah. other countries are a little bit more liberal about those things. So I think the, the, the U.S. in general has, has come a long way with regenerative medicine. You also mentioned the ethical application. I think that was a big uh, kind of, you know, not mis, you know, misunderstanding, but there was companies, unfortunately, out there that were using tissue that had been you know, received from, from a source that, you know, wasn't not necessarily wasn't credible, but wasn't looked at great from an, uh, from a ethics standpoint, everything we've done, uh, as a company, as biosome technologies or anything we've worked with has always been from successful birth tissue, mm-hmm. meaning that the, t- the tissue is received in the delivery room upon a live birth. Yep. So it's tissue that would otherwise be discarded that were, you know, able to receive as a donation and process and, and be able to now transfer that to other patients for, you know, lower extremity applications, different kinds of applications. And, and FDA's big thing, you know, again, on the regulatory stuff, is just marketing claims. And, uh, and as long as you're, you know, fall, falling within their guidance, I think there's a lot of avenues to do it. Um, yeah. They provide you the avenues, just, you know, a lengthy process. 
Sure. I think yeah. Also, Matt, too, I mean, uh, you know, taking it back to 2014, you know, we were when we first initially started the company, we were, we were in the, the Bush administration and we were, I think we were talking about Dolly the sheep and, and things of that nature where, you know, regenerative medicine was almost quasi taboo in that sense. Right. I mean, um, and now I think, you know, Dr. Marks, Peter Marks, uh, had a Siever has done a really great job of kind of outlining, you know, how do we move forward? How do we develop better biologics? And you see that even now, like what Andrew was saying and kind of alluding of, of using it, MNR, a micro uh, RNA uh, uh, vaccine for for COVID is is taking a different approach to to treating patients uh, with you know unique ways outside of the standard you know uh, I'll call it maybe more conventional old school thought of of medicine right um, using biologics using micro RNA using other uh, peptides proteins uh, gene therapies you know. Uh, uh, Bluebird Bio just got, just received that uh, approval on, on recent gene therapy. I mean, it's a huge, huge shift, I guess you would say, in a paradigm of sense of of how to how to go about treating patients uh, with different therapies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dolly the sheep. I those words hadn't uh, crossed my mind in, in in many many years. Jason, yeah. Thank you. Uh, back when uh, Andrew and and Chip reached out to you, Jason, and said, "Hey, how would you feel about kind of shifting your uh, your area of expertise from like fine tuning uh, Mazda braking systems and, and, <laughs> and building safe race cars to uh, to, to working on allograph technology and, and biotech. Did you take a step back for a minute and say like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Or, or, or were you like it kind of plugged into into Andrew and Chip's story enough to to feel like it was a seamless transition? No, honestly, it was a, it was definitely a seamless transition. You know, when you go to work every day. Uh, and you love what you do and you enjoy and the time seems to fly by every single day. And it still does even, you know, uh, eight, nine years later, it seems like every day you don't realize, holy cow, it's five or six o'clock and, and it's time to go home. You know, that's how every day has been so far, uh, up until this point and hopefully keep going forward and enjoy, you know, solving new problems. And, and, and the great thing is, is whether it's tissue, whether it's, you know, uh, complex engineering problems. It always gets back to the basics of, yeah. of, of engineering formulas and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, widely it, it applies all over the, you know, a very broad spectrum in the sense of application for, for engineering theory. All right. A couple, uh, one or two more personal questions, then we'll get to the business. Uh, and, right. Andrew, Andrew, I could ask the same question of you pretty much that I just asked of Jason, just from a different perspective. You, you know, as I said, you, you served in the Marine Corps, um, you, you know, you, you probably could have taken the next step into any industry or direction that you, you chose. Um, what was it about, uh, you know, was it an obligation to your, your dad, a healthy obligation? I don't mean to insinuate anything, but was it an obligation to your dad? Was it a, a genuine interest in, in, in science? Was it a business opportunity, a combination of all of these things? What inspired you to say, yeah, you know what, dad, let's, you know, I'm on board. I'm all in. Let's go, let's go do this. Yeah. I mean, like you, you pointed out at the beginning of the interview, I was, I was fairly young at the time, uh, back in, in 2014, when we started this thing, there's definitely a, 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 a consortium of issues of, uh, or, you know, reasons that led me to be interested in this, obviously the personal experience side and, and just seeing the transition of my father and how he used these type of, you know, biologic products to regain his own motor functions and, and own quality of life has been the driver for me. Um, I'm also, you know, really passionate. You said, you said again, you know, you'll see the personalities on here back to my military experience. I'm passionate about, you know, in, in, you know, again, Jason mentioned, but input outputs, I like process oriented, uh, structure, just structure in general. That's my, that's my go-to. So, uh, another thing you said was, you know, applying fundamentals. I think that's something that if you have that type of mentality or type of, you know, my father instilled a great worth at work ethic in me. And, uh, it sounds like your, your son's going through something similar as far as, you know, trying to figure out his way in life. It's it's the biggest question in your late teenage years going into college, you know, how do I set myself up for success? And this was an opportunity that kind of presented itself to me through my father's personal experience and then through this 
relationship we have with Jason and the, the ability to kind of raise the capital to, to buy out the controlling interest of the company, I really liked the mechanics of putting things together, the process of, you know, I've gotten really used to working with attorneys. That's something, you know, I'd never done before, mm-hmm. especially from a military experience. You have your, your lane and, and your focus, but going through that, understanding rules and regulations and how to make sure you stay within them and how to kind of implement those processes and make sure everyone hears them day in and day out, not just before an inspection, but you're, you're always inspection ready. And that's the way we operated in the military and that's the way we operate here. Um, so I just appreciate the fundamentals I've learned or I did learn in the military as far, as far as being very rigid, being very, you know, uh, you know, maintaining the standards, maintaining, you know, everything in accordance, you know, if, if we did anything in the military, you had to have the standard operating procedure right next to you as you're doing it, you're not relying upon memory. So we have the same kind of concept in this industry, everything we do with birth tissue or anything we do that's FDA regulated has a standard operating procedure associated with it. There's steps laid out. That's clear uh, exactly how to do it, what to do it. If you make a mistake, there's processes to identify what your mistake does and document it. So I just really appreciate the structured mentality and it fits well with my personality. So applying those same fundamentals I learned in the military, uh, along with, you know, the passion side from my father's personal health experiences, but it just was a great fit and kind of to Jason's point, I, I don't dread going to work any day of the week on a weekend. If I have to stay after hours, you know, we know we're doing something that goes and benefits another patient's life, just like the experience my father had. So There's never a time, you know, obviously there's times throughout the the startup of the entity or the company that are stressful, but the end goal was always there. And we've kind of stayed to that, you know, manufacturing products that change lives and science with humanity. That's kind of our focus and always has been since we started it and still remains today. Yeah. Very good. Um, You uh, alluded, you you mentioned just a few minutes ago, I was going to ask you this later, but I'll ask you now, since you brought it up, uh, you, you talked about, you know, getting the company off the ground and and the and the funding mechanism right the the funding aspect you know you and your dad have this idea there's this company that uh you know you, you can leverage to execute on the idea you called jason well you know you, you need to fund it um was it give me as much detail I, I guess as you can on how you got the thing off the ground from a financial perspective uh, i know your dad you know obviously did did quite well on, on the racing scene was it a, a combination of bootstrapping and personal, personal money and, and, and raising rounds or what did that kind of look like in, in the beginning? Yeah. I'll let Jason take that one. He's, uh, <laughs> I mean, we did it, that, was, that was probably oh. Jason's, maybe one of Jason's first questions when you called him, like, uh, are you going to be able to pay me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh, the second or third. Yeah. It was a whole lot of bootstrapping, Matt. Uh, initially, yeah, we, we, uh, my family, uh, and, and with the help of, of, uh, Chip, uh, we put together kind of the initial capital associated with, you know, purchasing uh, the controlling interest of the company. And then subsequently had uh, a lot of amazing friends and family that invested into the story and, and, and wanted to kind of what Andrew alluded to, you know, manufacture products that change lives and, and science with humanity. Those are two major taglines that, that really drove everyone's excitement. And, and we've got a great group of, of family and friends that have been shareholders from from day one, uh, and have been really following our our journey and our story uh, ever since then. Uh, we we did in in regards to the details, we, we did a several uh, what's called five hundred six C rounds, uh, capital rounds, uh, race rounds to raise some capital over the over the last you know eight years. Um, and then now you know the great thing is is we're manufacturing products and, and being able to commercialize them and and have a you know, a positive cash flow rate. So it helps, uh, you know, leaving it kind of self-funding or being able to grow our own uh, business organically at, the, at this point. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mRNA and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. 
Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash Emerging Biotech. Uh, I've managed to ask you questions for, I don't know, probably 40 minutes or so now without uh, asking you specific questions about exactly what it is that you're manufacturing. So let's shift this <laughs> a little bit and talk about that. Uh, as, as I mentioned, L-Graft uh, products created from perinatal tissue. Uh, you guys can fill in the details. That's a very, very high level description. Yeah, so we, we process tissue allografts. Uh, there's a, a standard or regulation within the FDA called 21 CFR 1271. That's basically tissue products or, or allograft types products. Uh, within that, within that uh, standard or uh, guidance document that they have out there, there's two different classifications of products, either a 361, which is a tissue allograft, things like we do with uh, placental tissue, where it's a piece of... Uh, of placental tissue that's cut and then, you know, processed, sterilized and transferred to a patient. Things that also fall into the, the 361 or tissue allograft category could be uh, bone particulate or anything else like that, that they use from a living donor or living or deceased donor to another donor. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's also the 351 type products. Those are biologic drugs. When you want to make that indication, you want to go through that regulatory pathway. So what we do is all within that tissue allograft type product, 361 products. The, uh, the three products you mentioned earlier, we have a three different ones, I guess you would say, is Vendage, Vendage AC, and Vendage Optic. Vendage and Vendage Optic are both single-layer amnion products. So the amnion layer of the placenta, those are uh, you know kind of received from a procurement agency that operates within the, the OR, the delivery room. Uh, collects the tissue aseptically and then transfers it to us, allows us to process the tissue and then perform final testing steps for release of that product. The Vendage C product is an amnion chorion layer of the placental tissue or a dual layer product that is also, you know, kind of similar concept of process, you know, procured in, in site, on site at the OR delivery room transferred to us. We then process using our, our bioretain uh, processing methodology and um, all, all of the processing we do has to be within minimum manipulation standards. So there's only so much you can do to retain the inherent properties of that tissue. And that's uh, the, you know, the constraints we operate within. Um, that's kind of how bio-retain bio was developed in, in order to make sure we retain as much as possible of the original you know, inherent biologic components of the tissue we process. I've had uh, conversations over the last couple of years with a, a number of companies that leverage uh, perinatal tissue, po- postpartum, you know, healthy birth tissue um, to develop therapies, whether they're uh, regenerative or, you know, even, even uh, parenteral uh, cell therapies. Um, so there, there's, uh, I guess, I don't know, from my kind of neophyte perspective, some competition for what would otherwise fall on the maternity war floor right and be and be thrown out as medical waste are, are you seeing that at all at this point in in the game like is there a, a i guess a a market that you need to kind of clamor for uh or be you know I, I guess in a concerted fashion you know be in the running for uh for, for good uh perinatal tissue um, I'm, I mean, a, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of babies are born every day. I get that. So it's yeah. not like there's, you know, a giant shortage, um, of, 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 of raw material, but I know there's some regulatory hoops you have to run through to, to get it uh, from the hospital into, into your facility. So just curious, like what that looks like from a, a competitive and kind of procurement standpoint. Yeah. On the procurement side, we work with, um, we work with about six different procurement agencies. So throughout the years, anytime we've kind of ran into a situation where, or primary, secondary, or tertiary suppliers haven't had supply of raw material due to these other, you know, competitors in the industry. We've either onboarded more, or at the same time we're developing and growing our business, these procurement agencies are doing the same thing. And on their side, they're reaching out to additional hospitals, explaining their, you know, recovery programs, the benefits, and and kind of the experiences that patients have had on the other side to drive adoption of their programs within the hospitals. So I would say we haven't experienced the issue. We've kind of grown together as an industry from the procurement and processing side. Mm-hmm. Um, you have seen some of, some of the competitors in our industry establish their own procurement agency services. 
um, and working with local hospitals. We haven't, you know, we've over the years been involved in different types of business under Biosyn Technologies, kind of umbrella parent company, but have chose to focus on just what we do best as is kind of furthering our processing techniques and, and sticking to the processing. Yeah. Yeah. And having got outside of that. Cool. Uh, the applications for the products that you're, that you're making, give, give us a, a rundown of, you know, who, who are, I guess, typical, you know, typical patients, what markets are you selling into? What are the applications for the technology? It, I mean, right now uh, we're focused on advanced wound care, lower extremity wounds, um, typically, you know, co- kind of core focus right now is diabetic foot ulcers, venous ulcers, pressure ulcers. Those are kind of the three core uh, areas. Um, acting as a wound covering, uh, our addressable market right now is, is heavily focused uh, as of since we did receive a uh, Q code, uh, Q4252 for our product back in October of last year, we've been really heavily focused right now on kind of two areas, um, Medicare MAC regions, as well as uh, VA uh, federal system for, for mm-hmm. the use of the product. Kind of those are our, our call, it, call it major lanes or major verticals we're kind of focused on. Um, and so we, we've started to commercialize two of the larger ones, Novitas and Caridian, which are kind of more out West Coast. And just at, as of recent uh, First Coast, which is here down in South Florida area. Are there, uh, you know, maybe not as just a question of uh, curiosity, perhaps a naive question, but are there, are there applications uh, in uh, defense? Like is the DOD a potential customer? Yeah. Are, are you guys looking at the battlefield uh, care, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, one of our major competitors just received a, a very large DOD grant for the use of perinatal tissue and study of perinatal tissue. Um, we are working with some partners, uh, university partners that are very aligned with the uh, federal federal grants and things of that nature. Working on uh, potentially some animal studies to to help position ourselves to be able to get you know a, a potential DOD or federal grant uh, for for our product as well. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, lower extremity wounds, and that's kind of what spurred that question. I had a conversation not too long ago on this podcast with a uh, company that uh, develops um, hum- uh, blood blood vessels from human-engineered tissue, and uh, battlefield care is a primary market for them because, as they were explaining to me, you know, you talk about how uh, different industries kind of kind of connect and 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 trends evolve. She was telling me that. Um, you know, with the advance of body armor, Andrew, I'm sure you're you're sure you're very familiar with this from your experience in the Marines. With the advance of of good body armor, um, you know, uh, there's a lot more in in you know human human combat situations. There's a lot more extremity injuries. A lot more extremity injuries are taking lives than you know core kind of torso body injuries. Um, so there's an application for for their uh, human engineered tissues and, and battlefield care and, you know, leg and arm arteries, for instance, you know, or urgent care on the battlefield. So it seems to, you know, it seems like that would jibe with, with your mission. You know, if you're talking about extremities and, and wound care and extremities, you know, that, that perhaps that, that reality or that evolution of, of what things look like on the battlefield, uh, there could be an application there for you as well. And I think also too to that point is the uniqueness of perinatal tissue is you have the ability to have some antimicrobial effects as well from the tissue. So inherently there's antimicrobial effects, but then also obviously being a covering and be able to start that regeneration process and, and you know accelerate wound healing, kind of get both benefits instead of just a traditional dressing where maybe you only get a benefit of a covering or maybe a, a, a hydrogel or something like that, you get the benefit of being an antimicrobial. Uh, in this case, you get kind of the combination of both, uh, which, you know, we feel is, you know, very strongly that, you know, that's what promotes a lot of these, you know, getting these wounds stuck in that circular loop uh, when you're in a DFU situation where they're kind of stuck, it gets stuck in that chronic state and they can't get out. We have the ability to not only be a covering, but also kind of just start getting that process out of that circular loop and, and back to closure. Yeah. What does the allograft uh, market look like, and what, what do you guys see from a competitive standpoint? It's it's not one that I'm intimately familiar with. You know, our, our typical uh, coverage area is more along the lines of uh, you know biopharmaceutical drugs per se, uh, 
parenterally delivered uh, biologic drugs. Um, so the regenerative medicine space is, uh, I, I love talking about it. It's super intriguing. That's why I wanted to have you guys on the show, but I'm not super, super familiar with what the, what the space looks like, the environment looks like from a competitive standpoint. Is it a pretty competitive spot right now? I mean, I, I would say, I don't know if Andrew wants to chime in, but uh, I, I would say in, in the sense of uh, direct competitors, we have, you know, some pretty large competitors that are commercializing a significant amount of material um, north of, you know, three to $400 million worth of material annually. Um, you know, I think the market itself has been growing exponentially as well, just due to the nature of, of sadly, you know, diabetes kind of being rampant in the sense of, uh, you know, that escalating year over year, uh, you know, from health choices and, and, and frankly, also the aging population that we have here specifically in the United States, um, uh, you know, that kind of drives better adoption. I think also too, something that actually, uh, Andrew and I were on, on another, uh, pod, uh, earlier last week in regards to people actually going to this as a, as a first line of defense, instead of waiting you know, putting a standard dressing on first, then letting get it stuck in this chronic state, and then ultimately having to go back to a biologic dressing, uh, looking at it going, okay, maybe we should address the problem up front with a, with a better dressing up front and not let it, you know, evolve and get to a situation where, you know, maybe amputation might be on the table or, you know, letting a wound get to a point where, you know, there's no going back. Um, I think that also drives adoption. Um, and then I think third, Something that we're seeing specifically in, in call it Medicare or MAC regions, uh, Medicare beneficiaries, is the fact that, ironically, COVID drove a lot of these patients, obviously, couldn't go into a surgery center, right? All those things were closed. So what did they do? It drove them into outpatient settings where the use of biologics is, is pretty, uh, I'll call it normal or standard. And, and so uh, we see, you know, saw a lot more adoption there, which then ultimately drove possibly, and, and, and it seems like the data is trending that way, where we're not getting patients into that situation where they have to go to a surgery center for amputation or, or limb salvage and things of that nature. So kind of a culmination of three, you know, those three things that have kind of honestly drove more adoption. And uh, I, I don't quote me on this, but I think the CAGR is, is pretty large and it's been growing exponentially uh, year over year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know whose whose pod you were on uh, on last week, but I, who, who, you know, I'm I'm sure this experience is far more engaging and entertaining for you than that experience was. I don't I don't know who's I I guess I thank that podcast host for warming you guys up for me. <laughs> yeah, it was it was nice to have a trial run. Yeah, just a little warm up run, you know, work the kinks out. This, by the way, is the business of biotech, the premier podcast in the life sciences space. But that's uh, that's another story. Uh, you guys, you guys have uh, you've built a a a. a a six, 6,100 square foot CGMP compliant manufacturing facility with multiple ISO 5 and ISO 7 suites for commercial production of your product. Uh, again, uh, young company, young guys. Uh, I would, in, in the world that I typically live in, uh, a company uh, at, at, at your stage in its growth, even, even uh, having reached commercial status would more than likely uh, outsource manufacturing. Uh, why did you choose? Why and how did you choose to uh, build your own manufacturing facility? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll take that one on. I think one of the things you know, or what we've been highlighting, or at least been talking about in in this podcast, is kind of the the growth and development or start of the company with the founders. Uh, one of the things we haven't mentioned that we definitely need to highlight is the people that we found mm. beyond us. And uh, there is a gentleman locally that worked for a pharmaceutical manufacturing company, very successful company. Uh, the gentleman himself, you know, had, had been in the FDA regulated industry as a chemist without any issues upon inspections, things like that. So we, we hired that, that gentleman into the company and really got immersed in how to start a manufacturing lab how to develop a facility, how to qualify a facility, how to go through all the right processes and procedures in order to make sure you would be compliant if the FDA is to come inspect you. Um, so beyond us doing any kind of outsourcing stuff, we wanted to be in control of our own destiny. We've been talking about competition uh, you know, in the past couple of minutes. And one of the things that if you look back from a um, you know, macro perspective at you know, birth tissue allograft companies or regenerative medicine type companies, you'll see 
that a lot have entered into the space and have either outsourced and not been in control of their own manufacturing or processing or either been in control and not understood uh, the regulatory requirements that are associated with it. So you've seen people come and go. We've been around, I guess, for eight, eight, almost nine years now. And I think we can attribute that to just honestly finding the right people who introduced us into this manufacturing stuff, working with them, and then being in control of our own destiny and making sure, you know, we adhere to everything. We haven't had any issues with, uh, you know, transmission of communicable diseases or adverse events with, with these allograph products with Vendage, Vendage Seer or Optic. So yeah. knowing that you can be in control of your own destiny, knowing that, you know, we found the right people who knew what they were doing to help us out and help us, you know, learn from our backgrounds, which weren't in this field, allowed us to, you know, create this facility and, and make sure that we knew what we were putting out there and yeah. creating a name for ourselves that was going to be credible. Yeah. The, what was it? Uh, did you, did you repurpose an existing building or facility or did you, did you kind of, did you, did you break ground and, and build from the ground up? No, we, uh, we actually bought a center. Um, you know, my father likes to use the term cosmic Velcro sometimes. The gentleman who actually developed the the center we're in and the building we're in um, is a, is a local real estate developer who my father knew from racing and had uh, built our facility on the back end of a condo building that he started as a project for himself to open up a, a server center. And that was in the early 2000s. His story when we first met him was, or when we met him about the building was that the, uh, you know, the cloud came out, kind of shuttered that business. They'd invested a lot into the infrastructure here as far as backup power, backup generators, making sure all that could support a server center as far as, you know, even down to the AC units. Um, so the way the facility was built, and being in South Florida, um, you know, we're 17 feet above sea level. We have backup power, backup battery, backup generators uh, right here uh, where it's located. Honestly, just worked out perfectly for a lab setting. Um, a lot of the infrastructure we needed um, from a supply side was already here. So it was a blank slate since it was going to be a server center. It was completely empty inside. It was just four walls which allowed us to come in and, and design from there. So along with the gentleman I mentioned a little bit ago uh, with the pharmaceutical manufacturing background and a few other kind of PhDs we worked with that had started their own labs for biologics specifically. Um, it had a lot of input into the design and, and kind of setup of our facility now. Um, you know, again, we, we process everything in these ISO rooms. We're actually expanding capabilities right now to kind of double our capacity just based on future projections and things like that. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a future projections is a good segue to one of my, one of my final questions. I just got a couple more questions for you guys and then I'll let you off the hook. We are uh, kind of running short on time a little bit, but um, man, I wanted to no, address yeah, you. Yeah, um, one of the questions you asked earlier about some of the data around the market, market size, and things of that nature. Of course, being an engineer, I'd love you to give you some solid data points so that you have an idea of, you know, where we're going, how big this thing is, too. So um, some of the things, you know, uh, the total addressable advanced wound care market. So that's things that are like, you know, uh, xenografts, other types of dressings, um, you know, advanced dressings in that chair, roughly about 10 billion in total. So it's a, it's a decent-sized market. And within that subset is... Is our group they they kind of call it skin substitute or cellular tissue products CTPs, um, and that looks at roughly about 1.1 billion dollars here in 2021, and anticipation by 2026 is about two billion dollars. So pretty sizable growth rate. Like I said, you know, double digit growth rate in the sense of of uh, year over year going outward. So I just kind of wanted to give you some actual data so so we weren't leaving you hanging there on that last question yeah that's uh as you said spoken like a a true engineer he (laughs) dissatisfied with his answer he turns to the numbers i like it well that's good yeah no it's uh i mean to to your point i mean i I was talking earlier about you know something as far-fetched as as battlefield care uh diabetes is uh enough of an indication to keep a company like yours busy uh for you know everyone's familiar with the the damage that diabetes can do. So yeah, no doubt. I mean, the numbers help for sure, but I, but I think it's uh, pretty clear. Um, You mentioned uh, Andrew, the, the regulatory path a little bit, and I I know, you know, just at a super high level, it, 
it's not apples to oranges, but it is a, not a direct comparison when you're talking about parenteral, biologic, you know, large molecule drugs that are being put in a person. Uh, it's obviously a different regulatory experience when you're developing um, human engineered tissue to put on a person. Still, uh, in relatively short order, uh, Biostem has commercialized three products that have been FDA, obviously FDA approved. Um, I'm curious about just how how you how you were able to do that in in such short order. What your, I guess, regulatory perspective and strategy look like uh, to 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 be able to 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 move that quickly through the clinic and on to commercialization. Andrew, do you want to take the regulatory side and then I can talk about the commercial side? Sure. Yeah. I mean, from a regulatory standpoint, I think I went into it uh, slightly, um, maybe sometimes too much detail on on my side. Mm-hmm. However, uh, you know, like I said earlier, in the in the CFR twelve seventy one, the the tissue or or that type of space, you have the three sixty one products or tissue allographs that we deal with. Um, these products, since there's no specific indication for cure, or we're not saying we're going to treat a condition or anything like that. Um, you're, you're not held to the same standards as a biologic drug or, or, you know, some of the drugs I'm sure you've had with companies on this podcast, you're not held to the same, um, requirements that you are with those, you know, as far as clinical studies and things like this, this is a human biologic tissue being transplanted into another human, uh, living donor. So you have to obviously make sure there's safety efficacy, make sure there's processing techniques or, or protocols to ensure that you don't have transmission of communicable diseases or introduction of bacteria and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, you validate as part of your initial validation of the product. All of that information, the FDA has a a group called a tissue reference group um, for for our industry. So all of that information we've gathered and developed with our R&D teams, with our processing teams, through our validations, um, we then submit to the FDA and the FDA will give you a letter uh, kind of determination letter, whether your product fits into the categories of, Hey, it's minimal, minimally manipulated. It's not, you know, changing any of the inherent biological structures or components of the tissue that's already there. And it's not based on, this is another kind of big constriction point. It's not based on the metabolic activity of a living cell in the donor. It's Mm -hmm. not being introduced inside the body. It's acting as a protective cover or barrier barrier for a wound application. Yeah. So based on all that information that we were able to submit to the FDA, we received, you know, positive responses from their tissue reference group saying that as long as these products are, are marketed that way and still adhered to the same protocols you submitted to us, uh, your products are designated as 361 tissue allographs. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the difference is there, we can't market a specific treatment or indication besides a topical application. Now, if you want to go down the other product, route to get a drug and get an indication on the product, you're going to be looking at further than minimum manipulation standards um, in order to meet that criteria of dose consistency, uh, batch to batch and and on a on a production level uh, is very, you know, almost impossible to do with with biologic tissue that you're not isolating anything from, you know, you can all, all we are, you know, kind of required to do and, and held to the standard of is making sure we do the donor history, medical history, everything like that, ensure that there's no, you know, potential risk of transmission and, and ensure the product is safe when it leaves our door. Yep. And, and obviously, hopefully efficacious for the patients, which we've we've seen personally and, and here almost every day. And then Jason can go to the other side. Yeah, I mean, so, so once we were able to receive that 361 designation letter from the FDA on our products, we would have the opportunity to then leverage that letter and go to um, CMS, uh, Center for Medicare, um, and be able to show that our product qualifies as a 361 tissue transplant, and then subsequently get a uh, Q code or reimbursement code for our product for Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, And that really uh, took us us quite a bit of time, actually, ironically, uh, starting in the beginning of... um, see here 2021 uh, is when we started kind of corresponding back and forth then trying to get uh, a Q code so that we can get the product to Medicare beneficiaries and reimbursable for, for clinicians use 
Uh, we were awarded it in October of 21. Uh, and that's really where things started taking off. We were able to then now leverage the ability to actually get it into clinic for Medicare beneficiaries in, in late 21 and into obviously 2022, which has really accelerated uh, that, that growth on the commercial side. You know, internally, we're continuing to grow that team and, and really build it up. I mean, you know, kind of we're uh, David versus Goliath at this point because, you know, we're competing against groups that have four or 500, you know, individual sales reps out into the field. You know, our team's pretty small, around eight to 10 individuals. But, you know, our goal here is to grow it as fast as we can and, and get out into the field and really actually articulate not only just, you know, the product, but really, I think, the big differentiator for us is really our bioretain method. You know, our method in which we looked at solving the problem is, is in my opinion, and just from a uh, scientific output perspective, uh, a better product. Um, you know, using using engineering, we looked at things. You know, call it material science things. You know, tensile strength. You know. Um, elasticity, things of that nature, but then also, you know, all the biological properties that go along with it and then came out, what we feel is a, is a definitely a better product to be a better barrier and a better output to, for those patients. Yeah. Very good. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question. It'll be a, a you know, as, as per usual, a, a wordy question. It's going to give you an opportunity to share with me some forward-looking statements that are going to make your PR and legal teams a little bit nervous. Um, <laughs> but, but Chase or Andrew, you said you, uh, you, you like working with lawyers now. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you an opportunity to work with your lawyers. A little I like I'm having a reason to pretty soon. They ask you why you answered this question the way you did. Um, so, so Biostem recently announced that you you've engaged Biologics Consulting uh, to support FDA strategies and, and submissions. So, you engaged a, a consulting company called Biologics Consulting to uh, to support your FDA strategies and submissions, which, you know, to an inquisitive reporter like me, indicates perhaps that there are some, you know, forward-looking plans in terms of products or, or FDA submissions coming along the along the along the line. So maybe share with me what the what the firm's going to be helping you navigate next, perhaps if you can, and uh, you know, just what the next maybe product steps look like for Biostem. I know you guys are not afraid of a challenge, not afraid of change um in, in terms of you know career focus. You have access to raw materials that can take you in many different directions. Maybe I'm reading between lines that don't exist, but I, I anticipate that you guys probably have some some plans beyond the 30 commercial products that you're enjoying right now. Yeah, I think I'll take a, an initial stab at this, but I think one of our, our big focuses in working with consulting groups like that, or just in general, is is how do we expand our, you know, from a, from an investor standpoint or just a, a growth of the company standpoint, how do we expand our addressable market? Um, not necessarily addressable market in the typical sense of more patient population, but how do we get coverage of our product into those markets? Uh, most recently, Jason mentioned we had, you know, Q code approval through CMS or Medicare in October of last year, but that's, you know, one, it's, it's patient 65 and over that meet certain criteria where standard of care didn't, didn't work and become the advanced wound care. That's when our products can be reimbursed there. Um, you know, looking at how we can leverage and acquire um, by, you know, working with these groups, clinical data to support maybe application of the products sooner than, you know, when standard of care hasn't worked mm. instead of waiting on that cycle for the wound to become chronic, why not catch it at the acute stage and get it healed before it becomes chronic. Um, so I think the focus, you know, internally we're focused on one, you know, building the sales team, but more forward looking is, is gathering the, the proper data to support coverage and reimbursement from our products from industries or, or markets outside of CMS. Yeah. And I think the attorneys will approve that answer. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a very good political answer for, uh, for Andrew. I think you hit it on the head. I can't add any more to that. We did a good job. I'm glad I'm glad you you concluded <laughs> that Andrew because I, I was about to call you out but I'm not going to <laughs> I expect that that was uh, it was a it was a truthful answer I expect that there's yeah. probably a little bit more to it uh, but yeah. but we'll revisit that on on part two another another Perfect. um you guys have been awesome to talk to I've enjoyed every minute of it Andrew I want to wish your your dad well um 
you know, I mean, I, 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 it's a, it's an inspiring story that he, that his conditions are the sort of the inspiration behind what you guys are doing. Um, but, um, you know, now that you're doing it, I, I, I hope that he is, uh, doing as best he can. I mean, I, I just, I, I wish him well. So. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. He was actually in the office a little bit earlier. He's, uh, he's still got the, the joking personality he always had. So he brings some levity to every situation, especially when I'm, uh, so process focused, uh, serious at, at the office. It's funny. So it's, it's good yeah. to have him around every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, pre- I can appreciate that. I'm, I, I, I'm kind of hesitant. I, 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 I told the line, I'm not sure how much I can joke with you, Andrew, you know, before, before <laughs> a stern look, like, let's get down to brass tacks here. Man. <laughs> no, you guys, uh, you, you, you've been a pleasure to talk to. I, I look forward to keeping in touch. Um, and congratulations on all your success and, and here's to what's to come next. Thank you so much for having it. Always, always great talking to you and hope to do this more in the future. For sure. Yeah, same as well, Matt. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate it. You bet. So that's Biostem Technologies, Jason Mataszewski and Andrew Van Verst. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which demonstrates its commitment to the leaders of early stage biotechs at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com, where I encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter. If you like conversations like these with biotech innovators, subscribe to the pod wherever you listen. And as always, thank you for listening.